and good morning here from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX. Now, just a quick item before I go into the show proper today. And a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Mike McRae, and we were talking about his new book called Unwell, What Makes a Disease a Disease? Well, I didn't have the chance to read that prior to talking to Mike, but I have been over the last few days reading it, and it is really, really good read. Highly recommended. Unwell by Mike McRae, and you can get it from University of Queensland Press. Now, I'm going to do something that's fairly mundane, but it's also really rather extraordinary. Here we go. I don't normally start fuzzy logic by reading the weather report, but here we go. The next seven days, well, in Canberra, we're looking at a top of 15 degrees. Tomorrow, 25 sunny. Tuesday, 19 degrees, partly sunny. Wednesday, 18 degrees, partly sunny. Thursday, 15 degrees, partly sunny. 19 and sunny on Friday and Saturday, 21 degrees and sunny. Now, you might say, well, I hear the weather report every day. What's the big deal? Well, imagine you have a wedding reception planned, an outdoor wedding reception planned. You've got all the drinks, the catering, the guests and everything. Or maybe you're a farmer and you want to sow your crop. Is it going to rain and spoil your day thousands of dollars and your big investment in food preparation? Well, that kind of stuff is not possible without weather prediction. And it's relatively recently that that's become possible. And in fact, today in the Canberra Times, in our Ask Fuzzy column, uh, we have an answer by the Bureau of Meteorology about how they do weather forecasting. And it is amazing when you think about it. Seven days ahead, we have a pretty good idea of what the weather is going to be doing. Now, one of the things that the Bureau of Meteorology mention is supercomputing. They couldn't do that without the huge amount of data collection that they get from across the nation, and then they crunch it into a really big computer, which is kind of handy because our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Professor Sean Smith, and Sean is the director of the National Comp Computational Infrastructure, based out here at the ANU. Good morning, Sean. Morning, <laughs> And uh, the big computer out at the ANU, and it is used for weather forecasting and climate research. Can you give me a quick idea of why this is useful for that? So I think that the reliability of weather forecasting has evolved and improved dramatically over the last... 10 to 15 years, uh, and that's driven, um, I would say, almost exclusively by the advances in uh, computational capabilities. Uh, there's a lot of data out there, but we need to be able to look forwards, and given the current state of weather patterns, cloud cover, uh, winds and so forth, we need to be able to simulate forwards and project what's going to happen. Um, if you went back a decade, the reliability of that seven-day forecast was much weaker than what it is now, uh, and it's the ability to crunch lots and lots of numbers and simulate forwards what's going to happen, which has evolved quite dramatically. 
It, it is it is huge, and in the response in the Canberra Times column for us, that uh, they say that. Uh, the the number of data points that they collect is is enormous and there are uh, sieges all across the country pulling in this data so we've got weather forecasting what are some of the other things that uh, the national computational infrastructure does so the the nci um, supercomputing facility supports a huge amount of effort as you have um, summarized rod in the climate weather space um, it also is the host of uh, enormous international data sets uh, from satellite imaging, uh, which allows us to get a much better hold on uh, progressive evolution of our um, the uh, geography, uh, agriculture, environmental I issues. Uh, and these data sets are, are really critical underpinners for a huge amount of um, both economically relevant and also ecologically and environmentally relevant research. You have to have access to the data. The data is huge. Uh, it comes largely from satellite and sensor uh, imaging, satellite imaging and sensors, uh, and the NCI hosts those data sets for access for the entire community. Uh, do we, do we have know. a sense of just how much data there is? So we have about uh, 40 petabytes of data storage at the NCI uh, in these huge data sets that I have been uh, discussing uh, and a petabyte is um well I did a little calculation yesterday on uh, just how much a 40 petabytes is mm -hmm. now I have a mobile phone on my desk here and it's got a fairly large amount of data for a mobile phone it's 67 gigabytes mm -hmm. and I also have the additional card in it and I calculated that if I stacked them uh, on top of each other, I would need nearly four kilometre high stack of mobile phones mm -hmm. of my type to be equivalent to 40 petabytes. Yeah, that's a very good measure. <laughs> four kilometres, so we're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, you know, we're the height of uh, oh, mm. some mountain just, mm. just to mm. catch that amount of data. Yes, and so this is this is dramatically changing the way that you the way that scientists have to engage with that data it used to be that if you wanted to do, to do some analysis you would just download the data to your computer on the desktop and you would run your analysis right you can't do that anymore because the data is so huge you can't pull it down it would take weeks and weeks to do it so you have to do the analysis on site where the data is and this is what they call big data, right? Yes, yes. Now, this is a fundamental change in the way we're doing stuff, or is it more just just more of the same, only on a larger scale? Uh, logistically, you are correct. It is more of the same on a larger scale, which forces you to rethink uh, how you're going to set the whole thing up to work effectively. And so the NCI has this very large compute capacity which sits physically right next to the very large data sets. And that allows the two to work cohesively together uh, effectively. Um, that's more of the same but on a much bigger scale, forcing you to uh, configure it, it all differently. Um, but the ability then to access and interrogate such large data sets uh, fundamentally advances in quite a dramatic way uh, the information that you can derive from that. There is something that a human isn't capable of doing. A, a human, uh, through manual methods, this 
his computing facility is that's fair yes it's correct so so in fact um, if you look at the evolution of NCI's work that we do with Geoscience Australia which involves um, storing and curating and hosting these enormous satellite data imaging data sets if you went back a decade and you needed to get information about you know how the uh, soil cover versus green cover versus water in the Murray-Darling Basin was at a particular mm. time you would have to write and ask to get a photo and you would get a photo coming down and then you would look at it right to see how things were changing now we don't do it that way anymore uh, you can do the interrogation it's all digitized so it really fundamentally changes how you go about things so how is a facility like this how is it able to do so much like it seems like the data is the Amazon River compared to a trickle out of a tap this stuff is just like it's really hard to convey the scale of data that we are dealing with right yes yes that's true <laughs> so how does the facility like the National Computational Infrastructure do this uh, so to do effective analysis on such large data sets uh, you need really serious compute power and this is why these two things go hand in hand at the uh, NCI which is physically based on ANU's campus uh, so you need a lot of the 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 um, supercomputer uh, at the NCI is you know, effectively about 80 or 90,000 um, very fast computers all tied up with uh, so optical interconnects just, just, to do just this. Just drill into that point because that's that's really significant. A, a, a desktop PC, like there's one mm, here in mm. the studio, that will have, what, one or four cores of the one chip or that's something right. like that? Is that right? That's right, yes. And you're talking about how many in this facility? Uh, about 90,000. 90,000? Yes. And are those each cores, so I don't know what the spec of this one here, let's say it's a fairly modern desktop mm. computer, mm. how would one of your cores compare to this one? Is it more or less the same? Similar. Similar, Similar? yes. So are they consumer commodity items, those cores? The cores themselves will show up in your laptop, they'll show up in your mobile phones. Um, a lot of the uh, the engineering that has to go into an ultra-large facility uh, is configuring them all together with high high-speed interconnects in order to be able to to allow them to work cohesively and coherently on, an, on a very large calculation so it's 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 parallel yes very much so it's parallel so it's lots of workers all together all mm. chipping away at a very big problem mm, that's right that's right now you said they work in parallel do well I'm thinking of it could become like a bureaucratic hell managing all those workers all doing stuff how do we uh, how does the facility so just managing the work must be a huge overhead yes isn't it? yes so so there are many aspects of the supercomputer center which differ from what you have on your desktop uh, on your desktop you you run you know, a few jobs at a time and not a great deal and so the scheduling is not terribly complex but as you've indicated when you have um, when you're running a, a calculation which farms out across 40,000 cores the actual scheduling uh, is extremely complex and so 
there is a, a very sophisticated piece of scheduling software which controls all these jobs running simultaneously on many, many different cores, pulling the information back, integrating it, then kicking off another part of the calculation, then farming it out again to, to the whole set. So it is a very complex uh, exercise. Well, I'm thinking there would be like layers of aggregation. So we were reading the weather forecast mm. a moment ago, and you've got a weather station in Dubbo, one in Orange, one in Marie, one in Coonabarabran, one in Canberra, one in Queenbeyan, and so on. I don't know how many are thousands of them across the country. And so is it aggregating data? So you might aggregate or collapse or process the data for each of those centres and then merge it up into successive layers. Is it something like that? That is, uh, it is something like that on the uh, data side in terms of uh, the information and data that gets stored. And then if you, if you then at some point want to say, okay, this is the current picture that we have from all of our data sensing. These are the current conditions. Now let's roll this forward um, several days and try and figure out what's going to happen in a few days time or what's going to happen in a few months time or a few years time and that's where the huge computation gets in, kicks in it's, it is it is big so we've got uh, what's a weather forecasting short term and then you mentioned climate so climate models are done at yes. this facility yes. what's it called I mean, you, you, the, the long name is a bit of a mouthful, the National Computational, Computational Infrastructure. infrastructure yes. But what's the computer called? Oh, the computer, uh, the major part of the computer is called Raijin. Raijin? It's a, it's a machine which was purchased from Fujitsu. Um, and Raijin is a Japanese word? It is, because the, the, the major facility was installed some six years ago. Uh, it's been upgraded in parts since then, and we're doing a major upgrade in the next year. But the interesting thing around that is that at the time, the government was um, trying to, to put a particular focus on climate and weather, and so uh, this facility was, was in some respects dedicated to try and drive that effort. So Raijin is the Japanese god of thunder, as thunder, I understand. which is appropriate given for... Well, so there you go, that's where the oh, name okay. came from. Okay. Yes, yes. And so the upgrade that's happening at the moment, mm. what's that? Uh, so the government has put forward funding uh, in December last year, which is a, a $70 million for uh, replacing and renewing the compute facility. Uh, that's a big process that we're about halfway through now. Ah, okay. And when will that be? The, the new facility will be installed and will be uh, operational around about the third quarter of next year, 2019. What will it deliver? It'll deliver a, a larger, significantly larger number of cores, perhaps 50% more than we have now, and each of those cores will run quite substantially faster than the ones we have now. Okay. It just seems like, well, we, we talk about Moore's law, which is, strictly speaking, the number of transistors per unit area on a, on a chip, but uh, can you see this growth in computing power just continuing? Are we hitting limits of... The answer is yes. Yes, we are hitting limits. Uh, so Moore's law over the past uh, couple of decades, let's say, has grown on the, on the physical basis that we could continue to miniaturise our electronics to smaller and smaller scales. And therefore, you could... Um, 
geometrically keep multiplying up your compute capacity. We're hitting limits now uh, right down at the nanoscale where we've gone close to as small as we can get it with our, with our current fabrication technology. So we are hitting limits and Moore's so law is broken. So quantum limits. Yes, and, and correct. And so one part of the chip will interfere with the neighboring part. That's correct, yes. Uh, <laughs> so the answer is to scale out, is it, to, to have more cores? Can that go on indefinitely to just keep adding more processes? Uh, yes, it, it, it can, but it's uh, logistically very challenging. Um, and so the uh, the computing community who make these large machines are looking at any and every possible way, including continued miniaturization as much as we can do it, uh, including outscaling, including new things on the horizon like quantum computing. Um, everything is being considered in the mix to, to advance our capabilities. Uh, well, we might break to a track now, but our guest on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking supercomputing. Uh, Professor Sean Smith, who's the director of the National Computing Infrastructure here at the ANU. And I'm intrigued by this computer because it's really, really impressive. And maybe this song is kind of appropriate on uh, Fuzzy Logic. song was Fat Man by Jethro Tull, classic music from the 1970s here on Fuzzy Logic. Oh, and don't forget, uh, 2XX is having a, a listener survey at the moment. And please mention Fuzzy Logic, say good things about Fuzzy Logic because we love doing our program here on XX, talking to really interesting people like our director from the National Computational Infrastructure Centre, Professor Sean Smith, this morning. But uh, the results of the survey will help contribute to the future of our station. And uh, it closes on September the 25th. And it's your say on what we can do better here on 2XX. And also don't forget to subscribe because running a station is very expensive. And uh, we live hand to mouth. Uh, so your help would be greatly appreciated. So. Professor Sean Smith and we are talking about the supercomputer called Raijin, the God of Thunder, that is out at the ADU. And we were, we're kind of verging on quantum computing and the nature of the computer that's out there at, uh, at your, uh, the ANU. And one thing you were talking about is uh, 80,000, 90,000 mm -hmm. cores and these things have to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. There must be something pretty fancy. There must be a lot of chatter going on between those cores. Mm -hmm. how, does, how does that work? Uh, very high performance fiber optics, essentially. So uh, the, the um, so-called backplate, which uh, handles communications between all those nodes, is a very expensive part of the, of the whole machine. Um, and it needs to be extremely efficient in order to have information transferring at the rates you need to effectively run thousands of uh, compute cores on one job. Well, just, just to interrupt you there, to contrast that to the desktop computer in the studio here, uh, it's all electronics inside the box itself, but you're saying within this computer facility there's optical communication. Mm, mm. So what it goes from, uh, is it a series of... Well, what does the thing look like when you when you're in the computer room? What does mm. it look like? 
When you walk into the computer room, what you see is racks upon racks upon racks of um, computers, all stacked up like pizza boxes. And so each one's and like a really big card. Yeah, there's and yes, and there's literally kilometres of cable running between these things. Cable everywhere. <laughs> An optical cable. This is a high performance, yes, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. And so each of these cards, each one of those is one computing unit of whatever you want to call that, right? How big is a big or big as a pizza box? Pizza box, yeah, that's right. That's right. And not the links between those, you're saying they're optical. Between all those cards are all joined by an optical link. There's a yeah, combination. Some, some depend. It's it's a horses for courses. So where you really need the fast transfer, it's called InfiniBand is the technical name for the connect. Um, then you will use that. And then for other parts that are not so critical, it's copper. Okay. So it's it's a really big pipe. Yes. It's a river. It's yes. a river. Okay. Yes. Okay. What do you have a sense of how much data can go down that pipe? So typically something on the order of 100 gigabits per second. So 100 gigabits per second. Yeah. What would that be? Like the NBN is what? 100 uh, is much less, right? NBN it typically is, yes. So so the, the currently speaking, the pipes that the data pipes that come into the NCI are running at about 10 gigabits per second. Um, Internally, the machine has much higher transfer right. in order to run these calculations. Yep. We're also working with the uh, um, national enterprise provider for bandwidth to raise the external compute pipe to 100 gigabytes gigabits a second as well. Oh, okay. So you're linked to other computing facilities around the country, is that Correct, right? yes. So you and internationally, data? yeah. So it's parallel not just within the computing facility but across to other sites? You know. Yes, the engineering that's associated with large data transfer um, across the country and between countries internationally is actually quite, in its own right, it's a really interesting and very... Uh, um, very high-tech exercise. Oh, okay. So an example comes to mind is perhaps the the NOAA in the USA, in the National Oceanic and the Atmospheric. The, yes, yes, that's right. NOAA. Right. And administration. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. So they're the climate modelling people in the USA, right? Yes. Correct. And so what they'll be generating or big data sets there. Correct. And we likewise in Australia. Exactly. And then these have to be transferred. There are in, there's an international consortium which works on all of these massive climate data sets. And you need to be able to move that data at speed uh, between countries. So likewise with the satellite imaging data which comes from the US satellites and the European satellites and Japanese. Now, now of all time, climate modelling is really, really big question, isn't it? And I've interviewed recently a few major uh, climate scientists, and they they talk about the climate models that they run. Mm. Okay. Now, so these are these codes are enormous. They they involve generations of development. So the Australian community for its climate modelling is typically using a model that comes out of the UK Met Office, yeah. um, and currently the entire the international community is looking towards the next generation of what they call exascale computing, uh, which is uh, uh, the next threshold that we will hit internationally in about three years' time, and. Um, 
there is uh, the community is gearing up to completely re-architect these uh, computing codes for weather simulations in order to take advantage of that next scale of computing. Uh, and it's an enormous software coding job. So what, what that tells me is just that one use alone, that the facility like this is m massively important right now. Correct. <laughs> That was a Dorothy Dixon. Self-serving statement, but that, it is that correct. That was a Dorothy Dixon, but yes. uh, look, here on Fuzzy Logic, we're very concerned about uh, our climate and uh, what that means for the planet. But then that extends on to the impacts of climate. So you've mentioned geoscience, mm. and what's some of the examples that, uh, if you like, and here's a hint, perhaps, mm. uh, the downstream uh, connections from climate. So agriculture yes yes definitely agriculture is a huge growth and development area in terms of applying the the latest data analysis techniques that uh, feed off these huge data sets uh, going out into into um, agriculture and environmental analysis environmental um, modeling um, is also another part that it feeds downstream into um, the the part of the reason that for example that the Bureau of Meteorology they use our supercomputer for their research but they have their own in-house machine for what they call production business runs oh, okay so that weather forecast that I read earlier that's off their internal and facility that, yeah. Yeah. so the new the cutting-edge research is done at the NCI mm -hmm. and the kind of production runs get done internally so once they've got the model worked out they run it yeah on and, their and own. everyday things for example planes can't take off if they don't have the appropriate forecast from the Bureau of Meteorology so everything grinds to a halt if you don't have this this weather infrastructure in place and churning out the predictions. Ah, oh, well, like I was saying at the, at the top of the show, when a farmer's going to plant a crop, and maybe they're looking out for the longer term, maybe they're looking for the seasonal forecast. So next year, yes. they're going to put in a rice or wheat or something. Yes, yes. How much do they... And that's a big investment for a farmer. Mm, exactly. Oh, okay. Now, water, is that something as well? Yes, yes, water... Uh, Water resource management uh, also relies on the satellite imaging data sets to see, you know, at what rate are reservoirs changing, where is water, uh, where is water being uh, uh, funneled through the through the environmental ecosystem. That's also a huge deal. Well, like I said, I can't imagine how we would uh, we would function. What are some of the other examples of what? data sets that uh, the computing facility works on mm, so so there is another very large emerging um, data set application currently is is in the space of uh, genomics and personalized medicine uh, so gene sequencing is the next generation of health and medical care uh, and the it, the the cost and time involved to sequence a gene is has gone uh, down so dramatically that and the community is seeing enormous possibilities for developing individually based medicine because they can sequence your gene on reasonable time frame now um, and so there's an explosion of work which is figuring out what can we learn from that and secondly if we can sequence genes now so quickly and easily at relatively modest cost the data implications of that are enormous uh, and the, the, the 
uh, uh, genomics community is basically saying, what are we going to do with all this data? How are we going to manage it? Uh, and so the NCI and other supercomputing centers are now starting to play into this space in order to, as we have done for the satellite stuff and the climate, we're now helping that community ch to chart pathways forwards for dealing with this uh, data avalanche in genomics. A avalanche, I think, yeah. Well, I, I've heard they say how many base pairs are there in a sequence of human DNA. It's, it's, it's a really big number. Mm. So what if you're a researcher and you're, you're trying to find a correlation between some disease? So maybe, well, my hearing loss mm. Uh, mm. Uh, may be related to genetics. Yes, yes, that's right. And so the, the not to say this is my scientific space, but um, the potential for being able to extract really important health-related information uh, from gene sequencing uh, is revolutionizing the healthcare system. Um, and on the compute side that, that we see at the NCI, it's the fact that all this data has to be curated and managed uh, effectively and it's a huge task and the community is only just getting around to starting to figure out how they're going to deal with that problem. Yeah, well, you, yes, you, so you've got the volume of data but the, also the huge diversity of data. How do you find dealing with scientists? How do they manage, how do they interact with a facility like yours? It, it does vary a lot depending on which community those scientists come from, what they do. For example, the communities we've talked about already, the climate researchers, um, also the astronomy researchers, they're used to this game. They've been dealing with large, large and ever-increasing amounts of data for quite some time. And so they know exactly, I guess we've worked out with those communities how to deal with it and how to, st how to scale so it. So they have the skills already yes, to a the, large extent. Yeah. So, so there are other parts of the uh, research sector, like the, the in the genomics space, where the studies have been much more limited in the past, and so people have been able to do it on their desktop. Um, they had local data sets, they could do their analysis locally. But now we get into this, suddenly this new in ecosystem, if you will, where the data sets are exploding and you, uh, uh, in order to find these correlations and generate this new knowledge, you need to be able to analyze as large a data set as you possibly can. And well, so suddenly the game changes and it flips back to a national infrastructure thing. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'm guessing that, the, say, a genomics researcher or a medical researcher, their skills, uh, chemistry or biology yes. and so on, but really, I think what you're saying is they're making the transition to information processing. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> and does it work? Do they, do they, how, do you, how do you help them do that? Uh, it, well, it's a complex process, and uh, the NCI, our, if you will, our, the thing that we can contribute for the country in this space is helping the community figure out how to deal with the really large-scale end of it the huge data sets and the compute that must go side by side with that. Uh, there are other parts of the government funded research sector who work into different parts of this space, but we deal with the big compute, big data end. Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing they need a lot of support. We, we might uh, take a, a song break uh, here on Fuzzy Logic. Don't forget to fill out the 2XX survey. 
you can go to 2xxfm.org.au and fill out that survey. And please subscribe. It uh, really helps us a lot to stay on air and bring you shows like Fuzzy Logic, Irish Boys, who was on before us. And our guest today, Professor Sean Smith from the National Computational Infrastructure. Now, before the uh, the song break there, Sean, we were discussing how other people, uh, scientists, can get uh, access to the machine and to the time on a computer. You were saying that there's... Uh, how do they do that? So, that, that, yes, there is a... Um, we a certain percentage of the facility, approximately 20%, roughly, uh, is reserved for what we call merit-based access, and that means that every year we run a call which goes out to all computational researchers across the country in all different fields of research. They can apply in, put their best foot forward, uh, and uh, request computer time on the facility to, to drive their research. Uh, and so that allows us to support the entire research sector, not just the big ticket items that we've talked about, like uh, climate and environment and so forth, and, and uh, health and genomics, but much more broadly across all researchers in all different fields uh, based on, on excellence. Oh, so what, what are some examples? Uh, so we have a panel which covers off just about every discipline you can imagine. We have everything from... Uh, fundamental physics through uh, chemistry modelers um, through uh, uh, people who are working in biochemistry biology mathematicians statisticians the whole everything you can imagine is there one that stands out for you at the moment I mean not without taking a favorite obviously but one that you can think of off the top of your head that uh, particularly interested well for for me personally it's I, I come out of a chemistry and materials background uh, and so there is a lot of work that's done on the, on the facility that I'm aware of, uh, which relates to prediction of properties of new materials and uh, new nanoscale materials for uh, manifold different applications uh, relating to uh, sustainable energy, for batteries, for um, water splitting to make hydrogen uh, as, a, as a, an energy storing medium, uh, for um, drug delivery. Uh, all of these different areas oh, are impinged. Truck delivery. Drug, drug, drug oh, delivery. Drug. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not entirely facetious there. I'm not just mishearing you because I did interview people from the NICTA research. Yes. They're called Data 61 now. Data 61. And yes. And it was operational research project they had going on delivery mechanics, but drug. exactly blockchain modeling. That's right. Yes. Yes. But, but okay, drug delivery. But uh, let's go into your own area, mm. so nanotechnology, mm, mm. and I'm just thinking of very small particles, and you just mix these somehow, or you make it do a chemical reaction, you come up with stuff. Why, why do you need the computational power of a really big computer? The, the reason for that is because uh, when you um, start restructuring and uh, redesigning materials at the atomic scale. Uh, the simple rules of chemistry that we learn when we were at high school, for example, they they don't work anymore. Uh, and you have to go back to scratch and start from um, first principle calculations in order to understand what is this particular material with these sorts of defects and this structure and these dopant atoms. What's it going to do? How is it going to affect its electronic behavior? Is it going to be an insulator? Is it going to be a 
semiconductor will it absorb light in the wavelength that you want it to um, will it uh, will it will this particular nanoparticle effectively bind uh, a protein target that you want to do for a medical application or not uh, you've got to start from first principle modeling and it takes a lot of compute to figure it out oh okay I kind of imagined that the the problem you tried to solve was to predict what how to make a new nanomaterial but you're saying that it's not just how to construct the stuff but what happens once you have exactly it? what are its properties how will it uh, interact with uh, proteins or, or lipids or cell membranes or what kind of light wavelength wavelength would it absorb uh, does it have the capacity to split water to make hydrogen um, you know, we're designing materials for to make batteries better, to make them store more charge, to make them last longer without discharging. All of these different areas. It's the okay. the properties of the material after it's been made. Not only how would you make it. Okay. Well, that that makes sense now because my my own background is actually in IT, mm. uh, other than uh, radio and yeah. uh, print, but. Uh, the first thing you do when you're doing any work in computing, and I think this is parallel to what you're saying, is what do you want to achieve? What's, what is your requirement? So you're saying that you as a nano researcher think, I'd like a particle that'll do something. And how do I get that particle? And then you work backwards from there, how the steps to, to construct it. Is that... That's correct. That's correct? That's correct. And but What sort of nanoparticles did you work on? What problems were you solving with your own research? Uh, so my research group at respectively University of Queensland, University of New South Wales and now at the Australian National University have been engaged in predicting the properties of nanoparticles uh, and looking at their capacity to absorb um, uh, UV and visible light in order to stimulate reactions off the surface of the particle in in uh, in water, uh, in water. So, yeah so this may be uh, if one this may be for a, a, a sustainable energy perspective you may be actually trying to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen um, so that you're using sunlight converting that energy effectively into hydrogen and hydrogen is then the it's the energy storer and the fuel if you will um, well, can we drill into that a bit more? Hydrogen obviously is a huge potential as a future energy storage yes, medium. Medium, yeah. Yes. How would the nanotechnology work in that case? You have to think about how you are going to make the hydrogen at large scale and how you're going to do that using uh, renewable energy sources. And so. Um, one major pathway towards trying to achieve this is to harvest sunlight uh, and then you will use uh, the sunlight to effectively uh, provide the energy that you need on the surface of your nanoparticles to split the water. So is this UV light? And, and visible light. Yeah. And visible light. Oh, and yes. visible. And it's hitting the water directly or is it going through? Uh, yeah, it passes through the water and it gets absorbed by the nanoparticle um, it then the nanoparticle then harvests that energy and the energy propagates to the surface of the particle and drives the chemical reaction which splits water to make hydrogen oh so the particle the nanoparticles an enzyme in this case is that kind is of that, is that correct kind of yes so and and so you can do it in one pot like that in one hit 
or you can think of breaking it up into, into two stages. You could use a photovoltaic material to harvest the sunlight and produce electricity. And then electrolysis. And then you use the electricity to drive right. an electrolysis reaction. But the, but the idea of direct conversion of water into hydrogen and oxygen, that's, so I'm just imagining like a big panel, like I guess it would be what, fairly thin? Yes. And you'd have these nanoparticles in the water and the light's hitting that and then you've just... Then you harvest the gas, yes. Harvest the gas that's that right. come off it. That's right, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How advanced is this research? Uh, reasonably advanced. It, it's demonstrated to work in uh, numerous cases, and and uh, the scientists are continually designing more effective and more efficient nanoparticles for that pr purpose. Uh, it is not yet at the stage. In fact, none of the hydrogen generation uh, technologies, and there are numerous different ways to go at this. Um, none of them have reached the stage where it's sufficiently cheap and sufficiently scalable to be genuinely competitive and flip over the economics of um, mm. using fossil fuels. Yep. But it's not too far off now. So it's actually might yes. might actually happen. Yes. Wow. And another route to do this is to go uh, with converting um, plant materials, uh, sugars and so forth, into hydrogen. Yeah. And so in that sense, the plant is acting as a thing which harvests the sunlight, yeah, yeah. stores yeah. it chemically, and then you take the plant material and try to convert that into hydrogen. Wow. Th that would be a wonderful thing. So so many of these technologies, these emerging technologies, work in the lab, but you're saying that scaling them up is a challenge. And, and making them efficient. Yeah. Uh, if it takes too much... If it takes too much energy to uh, split the water or turn the plant material into hydrogen, then it's a self-defeating. And so you, you need to you yeah. need to optimize the the efficiency of the fundamental chemical reactions. So it's energy return on investment. And yeah. in chemistry, we call that catalysis. You've got to find a, a catalyst material that will allow you to convert water to hydrogen and oxygen, or convert plant tissue into hydrogen uh, in the most energy efficient way that you can. So where does the energy go in this case? I presume you need some energy to make the nanoparticles in the first case. Is, yes. that, is that significant? It is. And so so you can make a material which is amazingly good at this, but you have to use very fancy techniques which cost a lot of money. That doesn't really help you. Mm -hmm. So So this is the whole thing with science. We can do amazing things, but sometimes it's very expensive. Uh, one of the key issues with scalability is you've got to find a material that's very cheap and easy to make at yeah. large scale. Well, I, I can brew, I can make alcohol at home very cheaply, but I'm extracting the alcohol so I could drive my car yeah, on yeah, it yeah, that's right. is, is a very different proposition. Yes, and so the, the, the um, solving this problem requires that you do those calculations at a fundamental level to find the right catalyst material to do it. Oh, okay. So, do you generate a whole bunch of candidates that I'm just trying to picture now where the computing power comes? Yes, in? yes, yes. These are very expensive calculations to predict what a material property will be in this context, and so it takes a lot of compute throughput, and you have to try many different configurations of the material. Um, sometimes our experimental colleagues will find something that works in a way they never expected then they'll come to us and say, what's going on with this? Why is it doing this? Yeah. Then we construct uh, a model for what we think they've got, what they think they've got, 
and we predict those properties. What would be, uh, I want to get a little bit technical with about these models because I'm curious as to how they work. Mm. What are the inputs to the model and just give me... Yes, so the input to the model is literally the atomic structure, what atoms are involved, um, their configuration. what's the configuration, how do we think they're bonded, what does the surface look like, yeah. um, what is the, uh, um, is it simple water, what's the fluid that's on the surface, at the surface. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the input. Uh, oh, there's also the, the the light input as well. That's an, another one. Isn't light it? coming in as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so we need to be able to do the calculations to predict what, how does this material absorb the light, um, and what is the nature of the electronic states you produce when you absorb the light, and then how does that, how does the electron propagate to the surface, and then how does it react to produce the reaction you want to happen at the surface? All these different facets are. Are, are literally predictable with quite a significant reliability these days. You could never do it a decade ago, it was just too hard. How many candidate nanostructures would you look at in one run? Uh, in one run we look at one candidate structure, uh, but we have to trial many, many different structures uh, in order to get a suitable oh, representation. So how, many, how many structures overall might you look at? Um, hundreds or even thousands sometimes. Really? Yes. Okay, so and each one requires a quite a lot of grunt. A lot of a lot of grunt. You, so it's a big sifting, sorting kind of yeah. process. It's an expensive, high throughput process. Wow. Okay. And, the and result? sometimes, sometimes experimentally, you just can't get that information. There's no other way to get it. Well, I guess that if you were going to construct that nanoparticle, then you're going to stick it in a container run it through the experiment and so on. That's a really time-consuming, isn't it? And expensive. Uh, so to literally make a new material, to figure out how to make it in the lab, it can easily take 6 to 12 months. And that's a huge investment. And just just you, to make the nanoparticles. Yeah, and and, and, and you, you can't do that for hundreds or thousands of different candidates. Oh. You've got to pre-screen somehow. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Now you, uh, Sean, you were the, uh, I'm trying to look your title here, you are Humboldt Fellow. I was, yes. Now Humboldt is a name that uh, comes up, we've only got a, a few minutes left, but uh, I've just been reading the biography of Alexander von Humboldt. What an amazing character. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more about either the position or Humboldt as you, as you choose. Yes, so... so um Humboldt himself was a uh, um, a man for all seasons. He was a Renaissance scientist who did an amazing number of diversity of scientific endeavors in his lifetime, uh, and and hence is rightfully um, uh, fated and honoured in Germany. Uh, and so, historically, after the uh, Second World War, Germany committed itself to re-engage with international society um, and one of the ways it did this was to create the Humboldt Foundation which underpins bringing uh, hundreds of international scientists to Germany to conduct their research uh, and this has been a massive and incredibly successful way in which Germany has uh, engaged and supported international understanding of Germany uh, and advancement of science in general. Also that's very much in the spirit of Humboldt the, the band. 
I, if you look around the world, you see so many Humboldt things. There's the Humboldt current. There's a Humboldt squid. I, mm. I think it's is it mm. his volcanism. Yes, <laughs> so yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was this where you did the nanoparticle research? In part, yes. In part, yes. yes. When I when I was uh, young, in fact, this is the other thing about the Humboldt uh, uh, system is it supports not only younger researchers but also it. Um, mid-career and senior senior level researchers so when I did my original Humboldt fellowship I was 25 I just finished my PhD and I went to Göttingen for two years at that time I was doing fundamental chemistry um, and then nearly 20 years later I went back uh, in 2007 on a mid-career uh, Bessel award from the Humboldt Society and then I was working on nanomaterials <laughs> oh it's, it's great to have you here on Fuzzy Logic now the uh, the big the big computer. Where do you see that going? What do you imagine for the, for the future? We've got the the big upgrade coming. Do you, do you see more of the same? Do you see it verging into artificial intelligence, perhaps? Yes. So data data centric science is is exploding uh, and generating algorithms to manage and interpret data at scale is what is what machine learning and artificial intelligence is is all about. And so that's uh, going to be a huge growth component of what uh, centers like the NCI do. Um, the machines will grow in capacity. The new machine will have roughly a factor of 10 greater throughput power than the previous one, which will amplify Australian science enormously. Australia will need to engage with international centers as we move towards new generations so, so of hardware. Greater, greater collaboration. Greater collaboration, yes. We're, we're just running out of time here on Fuzzy Logic. It's been great to talk to you, Professor Sean Smith, and uh, maybe I can come out and have a look at the uh, at the big computer. I was going to ask you if you have any nicknames. It's called Raijin, but uh, is it Black Betty or Hal? <laughs> uh, no, we, not yet. We're waiting. We're making one up for the next one. <laughs>